Hey, everybody. It is episode 104 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you without Steve today, but we do have a very, very special guest, head coach of the NAZ Elite team sponsored by Hoka. Ben Rosario is on with us. How are you doing, Ben? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Chris. We are super excited to have Ben. As our audience knows, we've talked a lot about you already, Ben, because we're fans of you, the team, and certainly your athletes, the Scots, Steph, Ben, and company. So excited to drill in about all of that. We're going to get to a little bit more background on Ben as we go, but I do want to start, as we always do, with some running current events. And you recently got firsthand experience watching a couple of big U.S. national championships. So we wanted to break those down with you. Ben, if that's okay. That'd be great. Starting with the U.S. Marathon Championships at the California International Marathon on our last podcast, we had two of our runners who who raced that event and talked a little bit about their journeys to PR. So now I want to talk about the front of the race. You obviously had Steph and Ben both racing this one, trying to go for that U.S. Marathon title. And Stephanie in particular was coming back after New York only four week turnaround, the the much much discussed already sort of quick turn from New York. But before we talk about her race and the front of the race, talk a little bit about that decision. Did that come from Stephanie? Was that something you guys talked about together? What was the thought process there? Well, originally it came from Stephanie. Um, I think it was three days after New York. She. Uh, came to me with that idea, which of course, originally my first gut reaction was that it was sort of an emotional decision, not a rational decision. Uh, but she assured me that wasn't the case. And she laid out her reasoning, uh, much of which had to do with the fact that, you know, her career is not going to last forever. And, um, after 2020, she and Ben have, um, designs on adding to their family so, you know, when you start thinking about it that way, you have to start looking backwards and saying, okay, well, how many more experiences and opportunities does she really have? And, you know, she's been running very well over 10K and in cross country and on various road distances these last couple of years. And so there are a ton of opportunities this spring for her to uh, continue that, uh, continue that success that she's been having. Um, meanwhile, she still wants to be as prepared as she can for the Olympic marathon trials in 2020. And the thinking had always been that she wanted to get two more marathons in before the trials. And if we did one in the spring, then that was kind of going to eliminate the possibility of running all those other, uh, spring races, 10 Ks, cross country, half marathons, et cetera. Um, so her thought was, Hey, if I can get one of those two in at CIM, then we can have this awesome spring and recover from the spring and then get ready and do one more marathon in the fall, uh, the fall being a season where there's less of those other opportunities. Um, and so, you know, when I thought about it that way, um, plus I know Steph and I know that she's going to be able or, you know, going back to that time, I knew that she would be able to take care of herself and get the treatment she needed and uh, get her body right. Cause that was really my main concern was just the injury risk of trying to turn around so fast. Um, but, you know, once I thought about it and, and once I digested that, um, 
that thinking or that reasoning that she had, uh, then I was totally behind it. I was behind, uh, 100% behind it and really excited about it. And uh, she then trusted me enough to write the schedule, you know, and that was a big piece of that. You know, I trusted her that she'd be able to get her body recovered from New York, uh, but I really needed her to trust me uh, to get her ready because that's kind of a weird uh, and unique, uh, unconventional uh, turnaround. And, and um, you know, I knew that I would have her health, uh, her long-term health, at the foremost of my thinking when I wrote the schedule and, and the athlete, you know, isn't maybe always going to think like that. So she did trust me and uh, we just took a very pragmatic approach to those four weeks and it all worked. Plus for her, there's money on the line at the U S marathon champs and potentially money associated with the overall road racing circuit podium. So there's other reasons too for her. I, I would assume that would have had to have factored in. Ah, uh, you'd think that, but I would have to tell you, I don't really think that was the case. Okay. Um, she um, she's had a f- fantastic year financially, and uh, between prize money and bonuses and and appearance fees, and then you know also she has her camps and her online coaching and different things. So I, I uh, she's in a very fortunate position. Let's just say that. And uh, though though she still <laughs> wants to make money, obviously there's a business side to it. I, I have to tell you that I don't I don't think that was part of it. Well, that's good to hear, especially in a sport where money can be a challenge for the best of us in it. Doesn't it also factor in that she's an experienced marathoner? You know, I've done personally 17 marathons, including CIM in December, and I feel like it seems like my bounce back from every one becomes a little bit easier. I don't know if that's just resilience training over the years of Lots of 20-mile runs or just having more marathons in the legs, but the body seems to know how to handle it more, given that she's been doing it for a little bit of while. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah, I I think that's fair to say. Um, You know, also, you know, you have to look at the context of each marathon and and who the person is and how they recover. And, you know, the context of this particular turnaround, you had to look at – the fact that New York City for her wasn't very difficult for the first 10 miles, you know, or, or any of the pro women, you know, they, they, right. they had a lot of slow miles in there and they kind of jogged quite a bit of that first 10 miles. So it didn't have the cumulative effect that <clears throat> going hard from the gun would have had for 26.2 straight miles. Um, so that was part of it as well. Yep. So going into this one, spoiler alert, she finished second and ended up coming up about a minute short behind Emma Bates. She did get the PR, but ended up chasing Emma for much of the race, who went off the front and stuff, sort of settled in with that chase pack for a while. Eventually, I think, got pressed a little bit by by Samantha Recker, who was third, ultimately, but Stephanie took charge, it seemed like, after 35K and ended up getting second by about a minute to the third place. And Samantha, who finished there in third where were you watching and how did it play out in your mind well i we rented a car and in the car i had josh cox josh cox excuse me who's uh steph's agent and my good friend and then uh larry rosenblatt who also a friend of mine who works with josh 
so we had Josh, Larry, myself, and then we had Noah Drotti was in the car too. Uh, <laughs> nice. Josh represents Noah and Noah had his uh, girlfriend, Emma Kurta. I don't know how to say her last name, but Emma out there, uh, not Emma Bates, uh, a different Emma, uh, out there running as well. So that was our car and we drove to the 10K mark and then we saw them again uh, just past halfway and then we saw Steph again at around, um, I guess it would have been quickly at about 17 and then again at 21 and then we shot down to the finish. So I saw her pretty many times. Uh, oh, I, I guess the second part of your question was, uh, what did I think? Yeah. So, um, we had a very simple race plan, you know, with the turnaround, look, there was only so much we could do. Um, we really kind of, my, my theory going into the whole turnaround was, let's recover from New York and then let's just maintain as much of the New York fitness as we could possibly maintain. It really wasn't to build fitness. I I didn't really expect to be fitter than she was in New York. And so with that in mind and looking at her, her, the four workouts she did leading into CIM, I really felt strongly that she could run 540 to 542 pace, you know, the whole way, but I didn't really think we could do a whole lot more than that. Uh, obviously in, in a perfect scenario, if she still had her legs left, maybe she could pick it up at the end, you know? And so when you talk about her chasing Emma Bates, you know, and, and choosing to be in the second pack, it really, it really wasn't much of a choice. It was kind of all we could do, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So she just went went in and executed that plan really, really well. And um, I think, to your point, Samantha, and I think Megan Christian, and I think Sarah Crouch all took a turn at trying to pick it up beyond that 540 to 542 rhythm. But each of them, after they tried, uh, fell back, and Steph just stayed really even the whole time. Uh, when I saw her at 21, I had been keeping track of Emma, Emma Bates' lead, and it was about 90 seconds at that point. And so... I thought Steph was close enough to the finish there that, hey, if she was going to take a swing, she was going to have to do it then. And that's what, that's what I told her when she came by. And she did hear me, and she did pick it up that next mile to about a 535. But she could tell that she wasn't going to be able to uh, keep that rolling all the way home. So she kind of slipped back to 540s. And then I think her very <clears throat> very last mile was 532. So she was strong the whole way, and she did make up 30 seconds on Emma uh, over the last four miles, but, you know, to Emma's credit, she was just very fit and had a great day. And, um, you know, there was really nothing Steph could do. I think Steph did everything possible to run the best race she could given the circumstances. And that was Emma's debut for those listening. And she finished, I think with the eighth fastest debut marathon ever by an American woman. So definitely showing promise out of Idaho there. So it'll be interesting to see what Emma does going forward, especially since she turned around and we'll talk about her result in a second at club cross where she finished eighth just a week later, which is nuts. But going back to Stephanie's race, she PRs by I think about 15 seconds, which I know for a lot of people doesn't sound like a lot of the course of 26.2 miles, but that's really huge for somebody who's been chasing a PR since 2011. Recently, I PR'd in the marathon in January by 12 seconds, and I could have been happier about it. So I know that must have been a huge victory for her to get second four weeks after New York to get the PR that she's been chasing for so long. Was she excited about it? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think you could tell that she really was. And, you know, 
while in some ways I would disagree with the terminology or the verbiage that you used, I wouldn't say she's been chasing her PR. You know, we've been picking races that we thought were right at the time. And some of those races allow for a fast time and some don't, um, you know, you don't necessarily think you're going to PR when you choose races like New York city, which she's done right. twice in the last couple of years. But I, I will say that, um, you know, we certainly think she's been in PR shape, uh, a couple of different times. And so, even though we believed that and she believed that you, you could tell that it was nice to have it validated on paper, you know? Right. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's, we, I can't deny that she was very happy and I was very happy that um, even though, like I said, we knew she was certainly in better shape than she had been in 2011 um, a few different times. Now it was nice to see it really come to fruition and, you know, be able to update the website and put that, uh, she's got a new PR. So, you know, it was, uh, it was very satisfying. Plus the upside now to her credit in her rationale for doing the race is that she can work on the faster end of the spectrum in the spring, which that's right. I suppose exactly if, you, right. if you're looking at the potential fields for 2020 on the women's side with a say huddle Hastings, Des, potentially Flanagan, her own teammate, Kellen Taylor, you're going to need to be fast or at least to have the potential to run fast, even if that's a slower, more tactical day on a hilly course in Atlanta. You got to believe you got to work on that end of the spectrum to be able to come back and compete in 2020 for the team. So that's got to be a nice thing as a coach to have that flexibility in the spring. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that we're even working on that stuff in the spring with an eye on the marathon trials so much as we are just doing it because she's really good at it, you know, and it's yeah. a great experience and it, those are great opportunities. Um, you know, you could make the argument for Steph, if you really look at her last two years, that she may have a better chance to make the Olympic team in the 10,000 on the track. Um, she's been very good on the track. She finished third uh, yep. this past summer in Des Moines on the track and um you know she's run so well at world cross country and on the roads at 10k um so I'm certainly not discounting her chances in the marathon but I think she's got two opportunities so I think what we're going to be doing in the spring has as much to do with um, the tra the track trials as it does the marathon I think what we found with her with the marathon is you know for better or worse she's probably best served in a situation like she had at, at CIM where we sort of pick uh, what she can do for the entire 26.2 miles. And she's very good at um, sort of, um, I guess, parceling out her effort over the course of that entire race and, and, and running exactly what she's capable of on the day. So um, that's, you know, you gotta, you gotta play the hand you're dealt. And if that's what she's good at in the marathon, if that's, uh, the best way for her to run a marathon, that's that's probably the situation we'll try to set up for her at the trials where we figure out what she can do and we uh, we go out there and do that. And of course, she finished first, her first national title at Peachtree in the 10K road race. So I, I think you're right. She's got a definite shot to make that team, especially depending on what Huddle decides to do with the 10K. I would assume she's also going to be trying to make that team as well, but we'll see. Well, I think it depends. I'll just say I think it depends on, uh, I mean, a person like Molly, I think it depends on if she makes the marathon team, you know? Yeah. Um, so that 10,000 team is going to be very, um, 
dependent on who who makes the marathon team. I think whoever doesn't will come back and try to make it in the 10K, but I think whoever does make it uh, will probably keep their focus on the marathon. So, you know, that that team in the 10 is very much uh, undecided because we don't know who's going to be standing on the line. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I I think uh, it's cool that there's just so many good – uh, female distance runners in America right now. We're kind of at the, uh, we're at the apex of all time anyway of, of American distance running on the female side, which is cool. It is. It's going to be fun to watch. Switching to the men for a second. They had a similar race in a sense that you had somebody go off the front. Your, your former athlete, Matt Yano, took it out. I wouldn't say that fast, but at a faster clip than the field wanted to go and built a pretty good lead just like Emma did. I think he was also up about 90 seconds at one point before things started getting hard for him and and the group kind of came back on him, particularly with Brogan Austin from 10-man elite out of Boulder, charging past him in the final half mile. Ben was also in that field, Ben Bruce, Stephanie's husband, so I assume you were following both fields, but what did you see on the men's side? Yeah, well, I mean, Ben, I'll just address really quick. I mean, he had had a pretty, um, uh, let's see, undesirable buildup with a couple of different things that set him back, uh, particularly something uh, that set him back the last three or four weeks. Uh, he had banged his knee pretty good uh, playing with his boys, actually. Fell off his bike, and um, it, it really – hampered what he could do in the last three weeks. So I kind of knew right away that, uh, or I kind of knew going in that either it was going to sort of be a miracle and he was going to be okay, or more than likely um, that lack of training over the last few weeks was going to catch up to him at some point. So, you know, he gave it a go and he's a veteran and it was kind of a why not situation. Um, But once I saw his split starting to slow uh, even just around halfway or just after I kind of knew he was going to be in for a long day. So, uh, that was Ben's race. Um, but, but he'll come back and, and, and have a good marathon here in, in 2019. But, um, as far as the front of the race and watching it, uh, you know, I was more focused on stuff, but I was seeing what was going on and, yeah, I mean, I wasn't surprised that Matt went to the front. I knew he had uh, been pretty fit, and I know that's what he likes to do, so that wasn't a huge surprise. Um, I thought early on that th- that pack behind him had a really good chance to eventually get him just because there was so – it's nothing against Matt. It's just that there were so many of them, and you know, running in that critical mass gives you a huge advantage. It's just it's – just, um, it's just that much less energy that you have to expend yourself. You're kind of feeding off everyone else's energy as well. Um, So it's a big advantage. Uh, But then when it got late, I thought, Oh, there's just too much of a gap. They're not going to be able to get him. Uh, And then, (laughs) and then I was proven wrong because uh, Brogan had a, just a phenomenal last uh, five to seven K. It was really very impressive. And um, you know, uh, that's super cool. I I was uh, excited to see someone close like that. (laughs) He destroyed that last mile. It was cool to see his finishing video because he was clearly got swept up in the adrenaline of seeing, <laughs> yeah. seeing that body in front of him and then going to get it, which is really, really cool, especially for a guy who really before the race was largely an unknown, at least, you know, in in the the bigger running news of the of the world, but no longer certainly unknown. So let's switch gears to Club Cross 
real quick. I'll spend a little less time on that, but I did want to talk about it because this is, in my opinion, one of the coolest meets of the year. It's not to be confused with the U.S. Cross, cross Country Championships, which are in February. This is really the team championship, and certainly they're individual accolades, but all the big clubs typically bring teams. Brooks Hansen's, who you trained with back in the day, always shows up here with, with teams trying to get that team win. It's And it's just a fun, all-comers cross-country meet. We love cross-country because you get marathoners competing against milers and steeplers, and basically everybody gets thrown together on a potentially crazy course in what might be cold weather, sometimes hot, could be muddy, could be icy, and it's just fun to watch. And in this case, it was certainly no different. I I actually have a, I'm not an elite runner. I, you know, I'm a 35 minute 10K guy, so I might show up in an age group result here and there, but I'm certainly not competing with the best of the best. But I didn't, I didn't play or I didn't run cross country track in high school. I played soccer. I got into running later in life and I decided one year, a team of us here from Austin went to club cross and in 2014 to Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania and competed in this meet and with a bunch of other sort of age groupers. And we ended up in a box next to the Bowman Track Club with Ryan Hill and Matt T and Camp standing next to us. And it's just a cool event because you see that really all levels of runners competing at a, a course that can sometimes be crazy and challenging and fun. And certainly this one was no exception. You had two athletes, Aaron Clark and Danielle Shanahan, relatively new to the team finished 12th and 16th on the women's side emma bates came back from her marathon championship finished eighth on the women's side which is absolutely unbelievable you had kate mackey from brooks beast win it on the overall for the women on the men's side ben blankenship a 1500 miler showed up and got the win against hillary boris steepler and ryan Malhalski from Brooks Hansen's was third on the men's side. So just a cool, fun event. How was your experience there? How'd you feel about your athletes results? What'd you think of the, the races overall? Oh, I'm with you. I love clubs. Uh, it's just, it's a blast for all the reasons you mentioned. Uh, I ran it back in the day a few times and really always enjoyed it. Um, you, you, you said everything I would have said about the event. So I'll, I'll take you to, uh, my thoughts on Aaron and Danny. Uh, they did okay. They did okay. Um, you know, we're not big on excuses. There was, uh, Aaron was a little sick, uh, going in. So that was kind of a bummer. And, um, I think Danny made a couple mistakes during the race that, uh, cost her some places, but you know, like you said, they're young and they're fairly new to the team. And so, um, you know, it's all part of the le- learning process. And sometimes we get spoiled because we've had so many good results this year and you want more and more and more and more and more. But, you know, in my position, I have to step back and realize, hey, in the greater scheme of things, they had a good fall. They got some good training in. They got used to Flagstaff. They got used to the program. And, um, you know, it was always about setting us up for 2019. So I think um, I think they're going to be just fine. And what was your last question? Oh, just about the events in general. It's awesome to see Ben show up and win a 10K cross country as a miler, he was also kind of cagey in his post-race interview. I don't know if you saw it where he was talking about potentially moving up straight to the 10 K, which you never know. You never know from Ben, but that was a, an interesting result for him. Yes. So the watching the race, um, 
watching the race was cool because um, it was you were kind of the men's race I'm talking about. Obviously, the women's race I'm watching with with my eyes completely focused on Aaron and Danny. But it, watching the men's race, since I didn't have anybody in there, uh, Ben Bruce and I were running around the course, kind of playing the game. Uh, hey, who do you think looks best? Who's going to win <laughs> right. this thing? And uh, I I wouldn't have picked Ben early on, not because he didn't look good, just because I was thinking more that it would be one of the, you know, classic 10 K type guys, strength type guys. But then as it, as it whittled down, as it, and as it got to about a pack of four or five, that's when I started thinking, man, Blankenship looks really good. He just looks very in control. And, um, and Heath Garrett Heath, who kind of was my pick to win, he was just showing little signs of uh, fatigue. You know, he would just, they would go up a little pop-up hill and he'd lose a step or two. And then he'd have to scramble to get it back. Or they'd go around a turn and Blankenship and Boer would come out first and Garrett would come out after that. And so, you know, just the, it just, um, it just started to look like Heath was on the ropes. And so then it was kind of, you were kind of thinking, okay, it's going to be Blankenship or Boer. And, you know, I think once Ben could smell the finish, he's just so tough to beat. Uh, down the home stretch of any race um, so yeah he got it and it's always been a cool thing it's always been a cool thing to me uh, how milers can run cross country it's so weird I don't know um, you know whether it's uh, Nick Willis in college or um, I mean there's there's all kinds of ex- Nick Willis and Nate Brandon both ran well in cross country in college Seneca Lasseter from Arkansas way back in the day even Leo Manzano had a decent finish in cross country uh, at, at NCAAs in college Um just for some reason they I don't know it's just their toughness they can get it done and so uh yeah that was fun it was fun to watch uh watch him come come down the stretch and win it he's been to Flagstaff a number of times and he's always been nothing but nice uh when I've come across him so I'm a fan apparently he's 29 years old too I don't know if you saw that in the results there's the yeah I don't know I don't know how old he is 29 sounds good there's a great mythology about his age which is kind of funny our sport needs people like Ben who are willing to inject a little bit of personality into it. So it's awesome to see that. Now, switching gears to a bigger sport question this week, I noticed that ESPN ESPN named Elliot Kipchoge on its list of top 20 most dominant athletes of 2018. I don't know if you saw this. He was picked number two behind Simone Biles, the gymnast. And I was listening to some talking sports heads who were bemoaning the fact that LeBron James was the first mainstream sport athlete on that list. If you're using mainstream to talk about football, basketball, baseball, those kinds of things, he was 13th well behind Kipchoge and Biles and other athletes from golf, tennis, etc. Are you a Kipchoge fan? Yeah, I mean, I was in Berlin. I watched him set the world record. He's a he's a rock star in our sport. Um, it's it's fun to watch him run. Uh, if people are disappointed that LeBron was thirteenth, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, he he's the best player in a sport that's only played in a small small percentage of the world. Um, and it's a very, very competitive sport where I think you could make the argument that there are people fairly close to him. Right. Um, whereas Elliot Kipchoge is the number one athlete by far in a sport that's participated in across the entire world. And 
he's minutes, minutes ahead of his next closest competitor. So it's, I don't know, it would be hard to make the argument to me that uh, Kipchoge isn't more dominant in his sport than LeBron is in his. Uh, And that's coming from a huge LeBron fan. (laughs) When you see Kipchoge post his training schedules, he's done it a couple times now after races, are you the nerd that dives in and tries to figure out what's he doing? Or is it something like, hey, everybody's different. I'm not going to dig in too much about another athlete's program. Well, I've looked at it for sure. Um, you know, you'd be doing yourself a disservice as a coach if you're not checking out what people are doing, especially when those people are having a lot of success. So whether it's checking out the Kenyan training programs or the Japanese training programs, I'm certainly doing that. Um I don't then copy and paste it into our schedules. I, I critically analyze it and I think about the context of who Elliot Kipchoge is and what his talent level is and, um, you know, why he's able to do some of the things that he's able to do, you know? Um, but, uh, but no, I think, I think, um, I think it's a smart thing to do to check out, um, his training logs. And I can't think of, anything that we've exactly taken verbatim from what he's done, but I do like uh, certainly the idea uh, or the general principles that he follows. And, and I'd say that we have um, many of those same principles in our, in our program. Plus he's been doing it on, in the same system since he was in middle school, essentially, right. Hasn't always trained for the marathon, but I think that's one thing that people neglect to think about is the fact that he's basically been working for 20 years with the same coach in a similar system, building volume, building consistency. And if there's a, a thing that matters in the marathon, that would be certainly one of the most important, right? Yeah. I I think in any sport and in any, uh, in any, especially in any endurance sport, you, you have to have that good coach athlete relationship And the coach has to be able to uh, sort of figure out what makes an athlete tick mentally, physically, et cetera. And there's no doubt that he has that. Um, He and his team have shown time and time again that they know how to be ready on the biggest days. And in every sport, that's that's the name of the game. So I want to switch gears, but still talk sort of running events. I want to go back to the 2004 Olympic trials. You were a Missouri-born athlete, ran in high school, went to Truman State University, a D2 school in Missouri, ultimately ended up, after going to Colorado, you ended up applying essentially to Brooks Hansons, joined them, I believe it was in 2003, shortly after they got their Brooks sponsorship, if I'm noting my history correctly, ultimately qualified for the Olympic trials, ended up in the 2004 Olympic trials. That team was ultimately Allen, Culpepper, Meb, and uh, Dan Brown. Meb famously went on to win the silver in Athens. But that 2004 Olympic trials was one of the first events as a soccer player, got into running later in life, really didn't start running until 2000, 2001, became really aware of the top of the sport about 2003, 2004, but I remember paying attention to my first marathon trials in 2004. And of course that one was noted by Brian Sell, your teammate at the time from Brooks Hansen's going off the front, staying away for 
a long time. I think he got caught somewhere in the 21st mile, maybe 22nd mile. Ultimately faded to 13th that day. But in a lot of ways, his result and then Trent Brenny's result, who was fourth that day, I believe you guys roomed together at, in Rochester Hills, was one of the events that really put Brooks Hansen's on the map well before we certainly knew the name Desiree Davila or Des Linden. So talk about that race. How was it for you and how was it for the team to have such fireworks going off with Brooks Hansen's jerseys in various places? Oh, this is cool. I don't, I don't get asked about this very much. Okay. So, um, yes, we, <clears throat> it was such a fun time to be on the team because we were all young and I think everybody was in their twenties except a, a couple of, uh, vets that we had, uh, hanging around from, um, from the kind of the local scene. And we were just so, uh, blue collar and we just, worked really, really hard in the, in the, <laughs> in the thick of a Michigan winter to get ready for that race. Um, Brian Sell was just kind of establishing himself as a star. I mean, we clearly knew it because we see, we saw him train every day. We knew how fit he was. Um, Clint Varon was very, very good. That was sort of the apex of his career as well. He was a little bit older than, than, uh, Brian, but they were good buddies and good training partners. Uh, we sort of had two training groups for that race. Um, it was Clint and, and Brian, and then a guy named Nick Cordes, who was a D2 guy also, but who was super talented. Unfortunately, his career kind of got cut short due to injuries, and he didn't even get to compete in that race. Uh, but going into it during the training cycle, he was tra- training with Brian and Clint, and they were they were crushing it. Uh, in training. And then you had a, a second tier of guys with myself and uh, Terry Shea and Mike Franco and Bobby Buscourt and Trent Briney, uh, who were all sort of training more for, uh, you know, kind of like 218, uh, whereas Brian and Clint uh, and Nick were training more for 212. Well, what happened during the training cycle was that Trent was hitting everything that our group was doing with relative ease. Uh, compared to the rest of us. And our group went down to Houston to train in the warm weather for about a week, uh, culminating with the Houston half marathon where we were supposed to just run our marathon pace uh, as a workout. Um, Whereas Brian and Clint and Nick went down to Orlando and trained there for a week and did their half marathon tune up at marathon pace at the Disney world half marathon. So, um, what happened in Houston was Trent went out and he got a little carried away during the race and ended up running, I think, 105 or 106 low instead of 108 like we were supposed to or 109. But the thing was, he was easy. I mean, he was easy doing that. And so after that race, he went to uh, Keith and Kevin and kind of asked if he could jump in with Brian and Clint the last three weeks of the segment. And they, they agreed because he had looked so good. So it was only those last three weeks that he actually trained, uh, with Brian and Clint and, um, in the race itself. I mean, look, when the race started, I fully believed that Brian was going to make the team 100%. I believed that I just knew what he had been doing and he was just incredibly fit. Uh, the story that maybe you don't know, and maybe a lot of people don't know, is going into the race uh, for the last three, four, or five weeks, 
the plan was, hey, Brian and Clint are going to go run, and Nick until he got hurt, Brian and Clint are going to go run five-minute pace no matter what. That's what we're going to do. That's the game plan, right? Because they felt like they could run 211, 212 on yep. that course. Um, Keith and Kevin felt like they could. Uh, but then when we got to Birmingham and we got downtown because we had been staying outside of downtown for a couple of weeks leading into the race, uh, when we actually got into the host hotel and looked at the weather forecast, um, it was a little windier than we thought it was going to be. And so Kevin – at our last team meeting where we discussed the plan for the very final time, tried to sort of change the plan. And, and he, what he said to Brian and Clint was, Hey, let's not do anything until 16 miles. And then let's make it a 10 mile race. And just, if you can run under 50 minutes for the last 10 miles, uh, I think you'll make the team. And I think that sort of just went in one ear and out the other with <laughs> yeah. Brian because he had been so hell-bent on running five-minute pace no matter what from the gun that he just wasn't going to change his plan. So when the race went off, you know, it was only about three or four miles in and he just couldn't take it anymore and he started running five minutes and nobody wanted to go with him. And so he built this huge lead just running five-minute pace, which to be honest with you, I think he could have done the whole way, no problem. Um, But – what happened was the race started about nine miles out from downtown. And then once you got downtown, then you did these five mile loops. Well, there wasn't a soul on the course for the first nine miles. I mean, it was just strip malls, McDonald's, Mm -hmm. Burger King, you know, classic like American, um, you know, big Boulevard kind of thing. And then when they got downtown or when Brian got downtown, he's got this minute lead in the Olympic trials. He's got 10 miles to go or not, I guess a little more than 10 miles to go. Um, Uh, We probably got downtown, yeah, what did I say, nine miles in. So I guess he's got more like 16 miles to go. And he's got this big lead, and now there's a crowd. Now he hears all these people, and he's 25 years old, and he gets antsy, and he starts running 450s. And that's what really crushed him. It wasn't it wasn't taking the lead. It wasn't building a big lead. It was he got downtown and started running 450s, which that was over his head. Um, and he built the lead even bigger for a while, but then he started coming back, and then it hit hard. And like you say, at 21, he got passed. Now, I know I'm going <laughs> long, but so – so I'm out there and I'm running and I never have any desires or, or, or dreams of being in the top 10 in this race. I, I know who I am at that point and I just want to run as best as I can. And, and I was, to tell you the truth, more interested in what Brian was, Brian was doing and Clint than I was myself. So I'm running on the course and my friends had come down, uh, driven down, uh, my college teammates and, and a couple other buddies. And um, I hear them cheering for me. Now this is late into the race. Uh, the leaders are you know well past 20 miles. And I hear them say to me, because they know I want to know what's going on, hey, Cell's fallen back, or Cell fell back, but Trent's in fourth. And they're talking about Trent Briney, you know, my roommate. And I'm thinking, and I don't have a lot of time to process it, you know, because I'm running, but I'm thinking to myself, surely they meant Clint. <laughs> you know, surely they yeah. didn't mean Trent. And, um, you know, so I finished the race, and sure enough, Trent had gotten fourth, and Clint had been fifth. And Trent had basically, you know, done exactly what Keith and Kevin said. He just stayed in the pack through 16, and the and the the pack started rolling. Culpepper and Meb and Dan got that whole thing moving, and Trent just didn't really pay attention to his watch. He just raced, 
and they basically ran 107, 105 for their for their uh, splits, and he ended up with a 212, whatever, and only missed the Olympic team by about 30 seconds. So I still use that um, story with our athletes. A, to remind them that it's not all about how crazy the workouts were leading in. It's about mastering, being efficient, hitting the workouts with as much uh, relative ease as possible. And then, you know, when it comes down to racing, um, especially in a tactical race like that, uh, sometimes it's just about belief, you know, and, and turning the watch off and turning the mind off and just competing like you do when you're in sixth grade running the mile in gym mm-hmm. class. And I think that's what Trent did. You know, I remember because Dan Brown went on to make the team in the 10K as well. Culpepper may have as well. I don't know. Ultimately, I remember waiting because I became a fan of Brooks Hansen's watching all that play out. And I remember hoping that somehow Trent would get that alternate call up if, if Brown dropped out and decided not to double at the Olympics, which he ultimately did. He went and did both. In Athens, but uh, were you guys waiting on bated breath that maybe he might get that shot? Yeah, I think I think Keith and Kevin really thought that he would. They really thought that either Meb or, or, or any of the three really would make the team in the 10K and then decline the marathon spot and take the 10K spot. I, you know, in 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 all honesty, I, I kind of didn't agree. Uh, I mean, I didn't say anything because I was right. hopeful, but. I just kind of felt like, why would you run the marathon trials if you didn't want to run the marathon? Why would you put yourself right. through that if you didn't want to run the marathon at the Olympics, one of the sexiest events in the Olympic Games, in the history of the Olympic Games? And so I wasn't quite as sure that that was going to happen. And, um, you know, when Dan made the team in the 10, it wasn't too much after that before Alberto and, and he kind of um, announced that they were going to double, which was a bummer because – you know, I, that seemed a little bit selfish at the time. Um, obviously, he pulled it off with Galen later on. Yep. Uh, you know, I suppose, but but uh, but Dan didn't didn't run particularly well in in, uh, in Athens there. But yeah. anyway, that was a that was a bummer for Trent. But you know what? When you earn your spot in your top three, you can do whatever you want <laughs> yeah. with it. So I don't uh, I don't have any ill will toward Dan for taking both spots. He earned them. And ultimately, Brian Sell went on to make the team in two thousand eight. That's right. So That's it all right. worked out. He, he was the first Olympian, I think, for Brooks Hansen's, right? That's correct. Cool. Well, that that must make well you for your for your efforts as a spectator from inside the race. You finished thirty seventh that day, but that's a hell of a story to tell. I love it. Thanks for letting me tell it. <laughs> so as I think about now, I'm taking that to the future. As I think about the 2020 trials. Obviously, we already kind of referenced the women's race. A lot of women who can make this team, including Kellen and Stephanie. On the men's side, though, it seems a little bit more wide open, sort of like maybe it was in 2004, 2008 for the men, where that second and third spots, assuming Galen is healthy, are wide open, right? And I so, think so, yeah. So as you think about that for Scott Smith, Scott Fobble, and and your team, what's the thought process? I mean, how are you preparing to make that team in 2020? Well, I think we're just preparing in the same way that we've been preparing for the last um, several years since we started the program. You know, we're just trying to get better. Each athlete, we're trying to get, uh, trying to put each athlete in a position to succeed. We're trying to continue to build uh, aerobic capacity and strength over the course of time. 
Um, we're continuing to implement workouts that we think will best prepare them for the marathon and, and particularly for racing the marathon late. Um, you know, if you saw how Scott Fauble closed in New York, that's the type of last 10K I think you're going to have to have over a similar type of course, to be honest, uh, or a similar type of terrain, that last 10K. Um, that's that's what you're going to have to do to make the team. You're going to have to run five flats or better on hilly <laughs> terrain for the last 10K if you want to make the team and, on the men's side. So I, I think uh, I don't think there's any anything magical about what we're going to do. We're going to keep doing what we've been doing. Um, on the women's side, you know, <clears throat> Kellen is going to be in a really good position because the race is going to suit her. I think the ups and downs are going to suit people who are very, very strong, physically strong. And she's physically strong. She has very strong muscles, tendons, and ligaments. And she's going to be less likely to break down um, than, than some of her competitors, I believe. Um, so she already has a natural advantage, which we'll continue to try to take advantage of by working in the weight room and, and putting a lot of miles on her legs, uh, et cetera. I think Steph, like I mentioned earlier, she's going to be as fit as she can be, or we're going to run her race. And, 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 uh, you know, I think in similar to Des in some ways, Des Linden, um, you know, we're going to run the fastest we can run on the day. And, and, um, if people, if three or more people beat us, then we'll tip our cap. Uh, the big wild card for us on the women's side is Alephine Telemuck, who is phenomenal, obviously at the half marathon and, 15k 25k that that sort of range she has nine national titles to her name um but has yet to really master the marathon but she's only 29 and and she hasn't done a marathon in our program yet and i think when she does uh, we're going to take a giant step forward into putting her uh, in a position to potentially make that team so uh i think we're in a great spot with scott smith and, and the other men as well um you know, I think it's going to be an advantage on both sides for us to have multiple people in the lead pack or, or at least fighting for spots. Um, that just creates um, a synergy and an energy that other teams aren't going to have. Yeah, for sure. All uh, Amy Hastings and Shalane, certainly in the last trials that were able to kind of work together and help each other. Correct. In that race. So you talked a little bit about your training philosophy there. Obviously, you emphasize building that aerobic foundation with an, an aerobic strength sort of emphasis year-round. I've also seen you say in other interviews that you, you guys otherwise kind of do all the other systems all the time. Mm-hmm. So what does, that, what does that look like in, in maybe in the context of like a like a five month build to a marathon, you know, how does that play out? Obviously you're working all systems. Um, what does that look like? When does the marathon specific work start? How do you puzzle together a, a peak marathon block? Well, so certainly it depends on the context of what you just finished up. Um, sometimes you don't have the luxury of a really long block like you just described. Um, nor do I think I'd want a five month, maybe, maybe four month at most, 20 weeks at most. Mm-hmm. Um, if we had 20 weeks, what I would do is build very gradually, very slowly, both in terms of mileage and intensity. Um, early on in the segment, there would be a little more um, uh, or a, a bit more of the shorter work, uh, 400s and um, 800s and things like that. Um, 
and the longer workouts would be a little more medium, a little easier. Uh, and then as it went further into the segment, that would flip. And anytime we'd be doing something a little speedier, it would be relatively easier. And the longer stuff would become much more specific to the marathon and much more difficult. Um, so it's just, it's just, it's what you're emphasizing during those different periods. Uh, you're always working on everything, but you're emphasizing certain things more than others. Uh, and basically it just comes, it's just as simple as emphasizing, um, the specific workouts that are, um, closer to what you, you'll be dealing with on race day. You emphasize those more. So, you know, it's the same for a 10 K if we're training for the 10 K, it's not that we're not doing long workouts. It's not that we're doing short. It's not that we're not doing short, fast workouts, but as we get close to the race, um, the emphasis will be on the, on the workouts that are more that 10 K pace type work. Those will be the harder sessions, um, closer to an event like that. If, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I assume you guys are doing a little bit of running economy work or sort of turnover work throughout. Is that fair to say? Yeah, correct. I mean, even, even in the marathons, even in the marathon segment, even the, in the thick of it, you know, let's say a four week block that starts out about six weeks from the marathon. Those would probably be our biggest four weeks. And, uh, even then we're, we're, you know, once, once a week or once every couple of weeks, we're doing a, uh, a little leg speed session where we warm up for four miles. We go to the track, we run 10 times, 20 seconds fast with a minute easy in between. And, and then we cool down for four miles. So it sounds like not a lot and it's not a lot, but it's enough to wake up the legs, engage the fast, switch muscle fibers, remind the body what it feels like to feel fast and smooth, uh, and, and be up on our midfoot, um, and running with complete, uh, and utter efficiency. Um, because you don't want to become that marathoner that you see that is just shuffling along, has no power, has no pop in their stride. Um, you know, has no, um, length in their stride that you need those things. Um, you know, the more powerful your stride, the more, um, efficient your stride, then the less energy you're using with each stride. And quite frankly, the faster you can go. Plus the way we see some of these races closed these days, you got to be able to turn it on sometimes at the end. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. Although, although, you know, gosh, you would hope that it's not closing anything in anything faster than you can physically run. It's, it's, it's really more about how strong are you? How, how efficient is your form um, at the end so that you can run what you're capable of at the end, you know? Um, everybody was so impressed with Shalane's final 10 K when she won the New York city marathon in 2017, which so was I obviously, but uh, the coach in me was what I saw there was I saw someone who was prepared to be running at her most efficient late. Uh, that's what allowed her to run so fast that the, the, the actual splits that she ran, she's run those splits a gazillion times. Um, the impressive thing that was that she was able to run them, uh, you know, that late in, into the race. And I think that was a product of strength training and, um, and obviously, you know, I don't know exactly what she did, but her and Jerry, um, working on being able to run those kind of splits late into workouts. And that's where the long runs come in sometimes, right? Structured, structured long runs with pace work. You guys are famous for those and you share those openly on Final Surge. So talk about some examples there of what you guys do late in a cycle that's marathon specific in inside long runs. 
Well, a lot of this stuff is really fresh in my head because uh, Scott Falbo and I have just finished up editing our, our book called Inside a Marathon uh, that essentially takes the reader all the way through the 20 weeks, uh, the four months that that, um, that led up to New York City for him. And, and he sort of tells his part and then I, I tell my part. And so in that editing process, um, I've reread this thing a million times and I'm really uh, locked in right now to what was going on in, in his brain and in his body these last few weeks leading into New York City. And to answer your question, you know, a couple of the real big sessions late weren't necessarily particularly sexy and on paper, but I think they were the sessions that really allowed him to close well in New York. For example, um, three weeks out from the race, we ran 26 miles, he and Scott Smith. And uh, the first 20 were on a hilly, rolling dirt road. And the instructions were to just run an easy 20-miler, nothing super fancy. But then when they came back, so they went out and back. And when we got back to the cars, we were at, we had parked at a, at a loop that we have that's a little over a mile around. And it's kind of gradual up, gradual down. And they ran four miles at marathon effort around that loop, already having 20 miles of hilly running on their legs and they didn't feel particularly great and they kind of had to grind through it i think scott fallboy averaged 514s and scott smith averaged 521s this is at 7300 feet uh mind you mm-hmm. um and they finished the workout and cooled down two miles to get 26 on the day and you know it was nothing that would pop out on paper necessarily i guess other than the length of the run uh certainly didn't compare from a storytelling perspective to some of the other sessions he had had leading up to that one. Uh, but if you really think about it, what was more um, specific to what he had to do in New York than that? You know, um, in New York at the end, I mean, you're grinding. I mean, you have to grind up fifth Avenue. It's a big, almost mile long uphill. Then you get into central park, and you're down, and then you're up, and then you're turning, and then you're on to uh, 59th, and then you turn into the park on Columbus Circle, and then you turn again, and then you have uphill to the finish. It's just difficult, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and, and it's on really tired legs. And so doing a workout like that, I thought, was uh, just as important as anything else we had done all segment long. Talk about what you learned from doing that book. And by the way, when's it going to be available for us? I was looking. I know the pre-orders have closed, but when do you think it'll be out for those to buy? Well, great question. Uh, you know, gratuitous plug <laughs> here. Uh, it's getting printed. The printing begins tomorrow, and the shipping will commence as soon as that printing is done within just a few days. It's hard for me to give. We had promised December 15th. And so I think it'll be very close to that. Certainly people will get them before Christmas who pre-ordered them. Uh, but as soon as the printing is done, to answer your question, we'll reopen the ordering and uh, that should be any day now. Cool. Check that out at nazelite.com, everybody. So what did you learn as a coach through that? I know as a coach myself, we all have our perspectives on how things are going, but what did you learn seeing his side of things? You know... There were a couple of times where he felt kind of crappy that I thought he looked really good and didn't realize he felt crappy. <laughs> uh, but for the most part, we were very much on the same page. I mean, I I could tell when he was kind of grinding out there, and I could also tell when he felt like a million bucks. Um, you know, if anything, what I learned more than 
maybe perhaps I had known before is I really think I just have now a good idea of who I work best with, you know, and look, here's the thing. You're not going to, you're not going to mesh with everybody perfectly. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but when you have a group of only about a dozen people during the recruiting process and the vetting process in terms of finding new athletes, when you have roster spots open up, you have, you have to get people that are going to check all the boxes, uh, or as many boxes as you can possibly check. And, 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 the, the box that absolutely has to be checked is they're going to have to mesh with the coach. You know, they just are. And, and that's the same thing on a college team. That's the same thing on a pro basketball team. Um, you know, as great as Greg Popovich is, not every single player meshes with him, you know? Right. And um, the thing about Fobbs and I is that we mesh, you know, and he trusts me and I trust him. And I think I spoke about that earlier in this podcast with Steph Bruce as well. You know, and when the belief is super strong, between athlete and coach, that's when good things happen. You know, of course, I think we train really well. Of course, I believe in what we do. But the fact is, I believe in him, you know, and he believes in me in return. And that's why it worked. That's really why it worked. And um, so that's, that's what I'm trying to cultivate with with every athlete moving forward is just that same belief. Because, you know, I do feel like, for my many flaws, if I believe in you, I, I believe in you in such a way that, that you'll then believe in yourself, uh, maybe more than you knew you could. Um, and so that's what I learned from the book, that this is a relationship that works really well. And uh, I think that's the key to, to the success we've had together. Speaking of that, I saw you mentioned somewhere also in an interview where you talked about having a natural confidence of sort of being the guy who wants to be in charge because that gives you the responsibility and pressure to be your best. Mm -hmm. But you've had that as long as you can remember. It seemed like, are you looking for that in athletes too? That same natural confidence? And do you think that's a born trait or is it something we learn? Well, I don't think it's a born trait. I would have said that until I saw a sports psychologist talk about it and remind me that we're born uh, crying, uh, pooping, peeing, <laughs> and needing to be taken care of 24 hours a day. Right. So he says that somewhere, somewhere along the way, we learn um, toughness and we learn that ability to lead and that ability to have self-confidence. So uh, I don't know where mine came from, but yeah, for whatever reason, I can, I, I've had it as, as long as I can remember. And I should, I should point out that, um, you know, we're all different. Um, yes, I happen to feel that I'm I operate best when I'm in charge, but uh, you know, the conversely, I, I don't operate very well when I'm not. So, you know, uh, I, uh, I tend to get lazy and, and I don't feel as motivated, uh, if I'm not in charge. So, you know, I, I've got plenty of flaws, but, um, I guess to answer your question about the athletes, I do think I work best with confident athletes. You know, I really do. And, um, I, I think that, Athletes who are confident are actually more likely to give themselves over to a system. And I know that sounds counterintuitive. You would think, oh, well, the self-confident athlete believes in himself or herself so much that they believe they know what is right. And um, that sounds good on the surface, but if you really dig into that, in my experience anyway, the most confident athletes are the ones that just say, hey, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Because basically they believe in themselves so much and their ability to get it done on race day that all for them, training is just a means to an end. Um, training is, a, is, is just part of the process 
that they have to go through to get to the day that they really enjoy, which is race day. Um, and so that, that's the athletes that I like the ones that, uh, that just say, Hey coach, tell me what to do and put me on the line, ready to go. I'll take care of it from there. Yeah. Plus I think once they find that belief in a program, a system, a coach, then they project that confidence onto that too. So it kind of gets pulled in to their self-confidence. A hundred percent. It snowballs in the right direction. Totally. Let's segue that into sort of talking about the mental side of the game, especially with the marathon. I got to see you with Stephanie in New York at a Hoka event on Friday night, a couple of days before the marathon. And she talked about her, or I asked about, and then she answered talking about her mental prep before a marathon. And she talked a lot about the movies Rocky, which I thought was awesome. She had very specific Rocky clips playing through her mind to sort of build confidence in various ways. But how do you help athletes work on that side of the game, especially at the marathon where you've got a long time to be in your head? Well, you know, I, I think it's a process over time, just little little tidbits here and there, just, you know, talking in a, in a car ride down to Camp Verde or a car ride to um, uh, a, a plane ride on, on the way to a race or, or um, just jogging next to them on a warm-up or, or whatever, just little tidbits here and there about what I um, – what I kind of think works. Um, but I would also say kind of to the conversation we were just having, it just, if you're confident and you ooze confidence and the majority of the group is the same way, then sort of through osmosis, um, you just, that confidence tends to rub off, off on everyone and you just sort of know no other way. And the bar is where it is and it's very high and this is what we do. And every time that somebody goes out and gets it done, it just increases that confidence in, in, in every single athlete on the team, not, not just the athlete who, who performed on that day. And so I think confidence on race day is um, much like training, an accumulation of things over time. Well, I shared a quote with our group in Sacramento that is a Bobby Julie quote. He said, you can't, ha- you can't do epic shit with basic people. And so <laughs> that's good. So I think that's you know, when you surround yourself with people that aren't basic people that are doing big things together, then it tends to rub off on you. <laughs> so it's a little bit what you're saying there too, right? I, I agree. I, I think that so much of the success I've had in, in my um, adult life is directly directly attributable to those I've surrounded myself with, um, be it my wife who, who's been uh, with me every step of the way, or my former business partner in St. Louis, Matt Helbig, who was just an unbelievably bright and driven guy. Um, to the athletes that I work with now, it's you. It really is true that that uh, saying that you're only go- as good as as those you surround yourself with. So one more thing on training. You talked about the strength and conditioning program you guys do, and I think that's a huge part of being a good marathoner is being able to keep your legs late in the race and doing some power work particularly is important for that from a strength training standpoint, something we emphasize with our athletes here. Talk a little bit about that, generally how you guys approach it, and maybe some of the specific pieces, how many sessions are you doing, and what are they what are they? kind of look like at a high level yes so this isn't a this isn't a uh, 
strength of mine. I don't I don't know the strength and conditioning world. I choose to stay in my lane and, and do what I'm good at. So we have strength and conditioning coaches that work with our athletes uh, twice a week. So we go into the weight room uh, supervised twice a week, once on Monday, once on Thursday for an hour each time. And each athlete has their own personal program put together by those coaches based on the athlete's biomechanical needs uh, and based on what race they're getting ready for, what type of race. You know, is it is it a shorter race? Is it a longer race? Does the race involve a lot of hilly terrain? Does it involve a lot of turns? Does it involve a lot of downhill uh, like Boston? Um, it, it's all individualized and it's period. period <laughs> They, they use periodization uh, to to get the athlete to the point that they want them to be before the big race, just like I do in, in, in training. So it's it very much mimics how we train running-wise. Um, it's a very calculated approach, um, and again, it's very individualized. So that's that's kind of in a nutshell what, what we're doing in the weight room. But you believe in it clearly, right? I mean, I, I know you talked about it. Oh, 100%. With Brooks Hansons, you guys weren't necessarily doing a lot of that because it maybe wasn't as in vogue, so to speak, then. But now it seems like it's kind of brass tacks. If you want to compete at a high level at the marathon, you need to be doing something like that. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm just an anecdotal evidence kind of guy. <laughs> you know, right. And so, so all I can tell you is that it's working for us big time really in a super tangible way. Um, and since you mentioned Steph Bruce, I'll just tell you that I, I don't think there's a better example on our team than <laughs> Steph Bruce. You know, she's uh, <laughs> she's uh, 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 not a big person, you know? <laughs> she's not as naturally strong as Kellen Taylor, right? Um, so the fact that over the last two years, um, since she's had her babies, She's been able to close faster than ever before, even though she's in her mid-30s now. Uh, and she's been able to race faster than ever before at shorter distances. Um, is the training a part of that? Sure, I'd love to believe that. And I think that it is. But the weight room is really where she's made huge gains because she's been able to – because I think a lot of people think of the weight room as a place for runners to prevent injury. And that is part of it. But I think it's a great place to enhance performance. You know, she's more powerful than she's ever been. And she's able to, uh, late in the race, be as strong as an, and efficient as she was in the beginning of the race. And and then she's able to, um, with each and every stride as she's kicking, produce more power than ever before. So um, I know that's attributable to, to the weight room and to the things that AJ and Wes Gregg, our, our coaches, have, have done with her in there. So a couple more questions, then we'll let you go because I know you're you're busy and have a family and a team to run. Not that you're running your family, <laughs> but uh, I'm definitely not. You know what I mean? Uh, translating all this, <laughs> my wife runs the yeah, family. Yeah, yeah, too. Translating all of this to the everyday athlete. You know, I talked a little bit about the group we brought to California International Marathon. We had 215 athletes registered from. A guy who ran a 224 to a couple Olympic trials qualifier ladies who got it done on that day to people that ran close to six hours in their first marathon. And so we have a huge range of athletes, a lot of them doing very similar training in a sense, different paces perhaps, but the work 
ultimately at the end of the day doesn't look that different. I, I described when we were meeting quickly in the lobby there, a workout where we did a simulator workout as a downhill point to point course where we finished on a track with some all repeats at the end to try to simulate staying fast at the end of the race on tired legs. Talk about that translation. How much do you think elite principles apply to the everyday runner? I know you've seen it when you were at Big River, Big River there in St. Louis. Talk about that and and some tips you might have for the the everyday runner to take some of the things you guys do and apply it to their world. Yeah, when you and I were talking, I was super pumped because I totally believe in that uh, philosophy. I since you brought up Big River, yeah, that that was one of my favorite things that we did there in terms of creating a community around our stores, we would, on our summer speed work sessions on Tuesday nights uh, on the track or on our Sunday morning long runs uh, during our marathon training in the spring, we would give these folks workouts that were based on essentially what I did in my own running, you know, uh, I'm not going to say watered down, but I would say adjusted for their ability level, you know, and, and I'll tell you the reason, and I know you know this, but the reason is that's what's, that's fun. You know, that's what people get hooked on. Right. I mean, look, you know, God bless you if you can run an easy five or 10 miles every day and that's all you do. I mean, I guess, you know, um, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. You know, the, the fun part for me was the workouts and the races. Um, that's what people get hooked on. And, you know, this idea that I think was present for a long time in our industry that regular folks, age group athletes were to be babied was um, a mistake. I think that was a big mistake. Uh, if you if you act like anybody can do it and it's easy, then what's the point of doing it? Um, we, the people that stick with this for a long time are the people that get really into it and they do workouts and, and they – they know what their mile repeat pace is and their 800 meter repeat pace is. And that's what we would do in our speed work sessions. We would give them a, a pace to run if their goal 5k was 23 minutes, you know? Um, and we would treat them like they ought to be treated like athletes because they are athletes. Everybody's an athlete. Um, yeah, we're at different levels in terms of what we can produce on race day. But other than that, we're athletes. And so what you're saying is exactly what I believe in. And if anybody's getting into running as a beginner, I think the sooner you get a coach or some sort of program like the program that you guys run and uh, start experimenting with workouts that are really going to improve your fitness, the sooner you're going to be super pumped about what you're doing and uh, the more likely you are to be in it for the long haul. Preach on that. Yeah, on our last podcast, we had two athletes on, one who had tried, qualified for the Olympic trials running a 243 and another who ran a 427 and got a 30-minute PR at CIM. Both of them actually train in the same group, doing the same workouts. And so part of our mission is to get that, quote-unquote, back of the packer to believe that they're worthy of the same level goals, the same work, the same attention and and attention to detail provided by a coach that that fastest runner is, is, is worthy of. And so good to hear that perspective from you as well. hundred percent. I'm in agreement. Now, last question, and then I'll let you go. Obviously we've talked a lot about NAZ elite 
and you guys are very open as a part of your philosophy about sharing as much as possible about what you guys do, including training schedules, everything else. People can obviously find more at NAZElite.com, but what's the best way for people to follow along? What's upcoming that they should know about other than the release of the book Inside a Marathon so that we can build more fans of NAZ Elite? Uh, well, you know, follow us on social media. We're very, very active, and our social media is very uh, calculated. It's it's very much based on uh, creating more fans and interacting with those fans, um, sharing every part of our journey. So on Twitter, it's just at NAZ underscore Elite. Uh, same thing on Instagram, at NAZ underscore Elite. Um, you can follow me at Coach Ben Rosario one on Instagram or at uh, – Oh, what? Let's see. Twitter at Ben Rosario one. Um, let's see. What else can you do? You can sign up for our newsletter. So you can do that on our website, nazelite.com. Every single race that we run, we send out a newsletter beforehand, previewing the race and updating you on what's going on. Um, you can, you can also on our website, click on the tab that says, uh, um, uh, logs and you can go in, and I think you referenced this in the podcast, you can read our daily training logs via Final Surge. Final Surge is our uh, partner, um, is one of our partners, and, and they do a great job uh, with everything they do. But you can read Scott Falbo's log, Steph Bruce's log, Kellen Taylor's log, et cetera, everybody on our team. Um, you can go on our videos page and check out tons of content there or our podcasts page, um, our news page. The, the you you could really waste a day at work on our <laughs> website i think um so you know those are just a few of the ways and then as you as you follow us on on the on the web um i would just encourage you to follow each of our athletes as well uh because they each do a great job in their own way of sharing their personal journey and i would say also support your sponsor hoka because they do a good job not only of supporting you guys but telling stories within our sport which is so so important to continue to build fanship so thank you ben we really appreciate it this has been an awesome interview and thanks to everybody for listening this has been episode 104 of the running rogue podcast as always you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on instagram twitter or facebook and go buy the book inside a marathon to be released soon at nazelite.com we'll talk to you guys next time